Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Roger Woodall, founder of the Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. With all events in 2020 grinding to a halt, I'll be bringing people back together, but in a different way. Hello and welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur podcast. This episode is a continuation of the journey discussed throughout episode one and four of this podcast. So if you haven't yet, do yourself a favor and go listen to them first. And while you're at it, and this goes for everybody listening, please subscribe, rate and review The Eventful Entrepreneur. This helps us reach a wider audience and keeps us getting amazing guests to share their great stories with us. I'm producer Dan and I'm here with The Eventful Entrepreneur himself, Mr. Roger Whittle. How are you, Dodge? I'm very good, mate. It has been a wild couple of weeks, which we're not allowed to talk about right now, but I'm not sure when this one gets released, but I'm sure everyone will hear hear the news. Yeah, more coming soon. Big, big news for us. But before we go there, I'll just mention that in uh, the previous episodes, we hurtled through your evolution from a young boy flogging toys recovered from bins uh, <laughs> to your nightclub days promoting parties, and finally to the owner of a new, unique sport and music festival, Bournemouth Sevens. That all-important inaugural event, get over the line, and you came out the other end making a profit, albeit not enough to start planning early retirement. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. But from there, what did you start planning in the wake of the first festival? I had a massive downer straight away after the first festival because you're buzzing, uh, you put on the festival, you know what happened, you, it takes a couple of weeks to work out all the finances and then you realise you made a, a very small profit which we were really proud of. You know, like, like I said in the previous one, it takes seven years that I was told to break even in a in music festival but we were unique in sport and music so I kind of saw a different angle there but yeah, it felt really lonely straight away. Uh, the phone stopped um, and then, then it was like, right, Jesus, reality kicked in my God, we, we've got to go again. And we knew we'd created uh, this feeling around the festival and we knew that everyone had gone back to different parts of the UK and were talking highly of it because we saw all the comments on Facebook. Um, and it was like, my God, we've got a plan now, 12 whole months planning and promoting for the next one. But we knew the next one was the bank holiday weekend. We knew we were gonna, people were going to stay on the Sunday for the bank holiday weekend. So it was just, it was all guns blazing again and it was still working out of a small little garage at home and just trying to figure it all out and I had a strategy but to get to your strategy you've got all these different tactics but actually within the tactics it was all the unknown I didn't have a mentor to, to look at and say what happens now I was just figuring it all out as I was going along so you mentioned the fact that it was going to be a bank holiday uh, weekend this time that was a change you made I take it and what other kind of changes did you look at and make and tweaks to, to make it a better experience so like I said before we had we had a, a big VIP so it was like an event in an event so we had 20 round tables and all the silver service. We got rid of that for 2009 and we had this wonderful big space. It was like 30 meters by 30 meter space, beautiful marquee looking over the main pitch. So I turned that into a nightclub. Mm. Um, and I thought, you know what? I've got to look at all the different revenue streams here. I learned so much in 2008, 2009, what can I tweak and improve? And I looked at the revenue streams and said, well, why don't we make this just a VIP for all players? So we created all the players, uh, we created a VIP area for all the players and just charged 20 quid instead of the 100 quid the year before for corporates or whatever. So we got rid of all the tables, got rid of all the uh, the kitchens out the back and all the bull lake that come with subcontracting that out, you know. So we created a massive VIP and it was uh, it was a star cloth, you know, all the stars in it. So it was black inside, um, their own DJ, their own uh, beer garden at the front looking over the main pitch. So we sold all these tickets for 2009 because everyone wanted an upgrade. And um, it was really odd. So 
<laughs> Again, trying to work it out. You had a, a thousand, imagine a thousand people nightclub, uh, flooring, carpet, sound, da, da, da. And then you had to walk through that nightclub and we created a VVIP. Mm-hmm. And the VVIP was was the old VIP. So this is for like celebrities, corporates, uh, older crowd. And we made it into an Ibiza style VVIP. So yeah. Ibiza music in the daytime, all chilled. And we created a five-star barbecue, um, self-service. And that was much better for us because it was a tenner ahead rather than us paying 40 quid ahead to to the catering company. So again, working it all out, this daytime, nighttime thing, players are daytime. What do they do at nighttime? What do the the older people do in the daytime? You know, sort of your 28s to 30s, 35s to 40s. And it was all just figuring it all out. Um, and the key to it is trying to see how we can increase the revenue streams, looking at catering. We took catering in-house and, and we said, right, instead of working on a cut now on a percentage, the caterers can pay us a fee to be at the festival because it was kind of more established in year two. And that's not a greed thing. That's not a, we need, I need to make more money. That's no. more of a, we need to keep this thing going. Yeah. And to do that, you need it to be more profitable yeah. in year two, right? 100%, 100%. And we wanted to make sure that we gave people the opportunity to come in and make money from our festival. Mm. But we needed to take control. We needed to take control of all the revenue streams. We need to be in control. We want everyone to earn, but we need to be in charge because it's our festival. Our standards are super high. And on on paper, in that year one, you you achieved a dream. You you created something special. But how did you actually feel? So obviously, you went straight back into planning things, and you, you've mentioned that you were you felt a bit flat, flat, flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so. Did you have time at that point to stop and appreciate it or did no. you just feel flat? Felt flat and I was like, right, I'm on it. Let's go again. Let's go. Energy levels raised. What do we do now? We had three members of staff. We had to take on another member of staff. We still couldn't afford to go into of our own offices. So we're still meeting people in restaurants and saying, oh, sorry, our boardroom is uh, is busy today. We can't use our boardroom <laughs> for the meetings. It was just like smoke screens and um, that's what we had to do. You know, our website back then, I think it was Diamond Sports Events. That was our sort of umbrella company. And there was pictures on there of, of offices and people shaking hands and all this stuff. Like, you know, 11 st- years stock ago. Image, yeah, stock, stock images, yeah, yeah. you know, to create that sort of, uh, well, that front, I guess. Um, but that worked. Mm. You know, anyone out there, don't jump straight into offices and think that this is the be all and end all. You've got to make it work before, you've got to make the finances work before you can commit to going to offices. Yeah. You know, staff and offices are your biggest overheads and can also break a business very quickly. If you grow a business too quickly, it can break your business. So we were strategically looking at bringing one person on again. But when you bring someone on for 20 to 30 grand, whatever it may be back then, you've got to put more pressure on yourself because you've got to turn over more money at the festival. And in 2008, I was walking around the festival, typing my Blackberry back then. Yeah, I was jotting notes in there. How can I improve it? And that's what I've done ever since is mm. how can I tweak, 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 tweak. But I knew in 2009, it wasn't going to cost 300 grand. I knew it was going to cost 400 grand. So that's another 100 grand. So you've got to turn over a load more money to break even again. But I knew I wanted better fencing. I knew I wanted better tents. I knew I wanted better sound systems. And it kind of just went on from there then, really. But back in that 2009... One of the big sponsors from 2008, a gaming company who tested the water with us, they come in and were blown away. They met us straight away and said, right, we want to back you for a long-term contract. We love this. Your demographic is our demographic. And they fully got behind us. And David Yarnton and John Donnellan were outstanding, outstanding to deal with. And again, in sponsorship, it's all about relationships. Yeah. You know, if you're going to see a CEO of a big firm somewhere and they don't like rugby or netball or sport, the chances are they're not really going to back you as a person. But, you know, I, 
all of those years I was selling people my dream. This is my vision. This is what I want to do. This is where I'm going. And there was lots of people who come on the journey and really backed us, which was lovely. Uh, speaking of which, did you seek uh, external revenue streams? Did you ex seek uh, investment at all at this stage? Or did you want to go full on solo? Yeah, it was really important for me, Dan. That's a really good question, mate, because it's not easy to go and get investment, but it's easier to get investment off someone and they chuck in underground and they get 10% of your shares and or that someone puts in half a bar and they get 20% or 500 grand and they get 30% of your shares, whatever it may be. I was adamant that I didn't want to give away any shares. Yeah. And to this day, we still own 100% shares, myself and my wife. So we were adamant. But back then, there was a time. Dragon's Den was on the TV back then. And in 2009, it was like, we need more money. How are we going to get this more money? Now, we've already remortgaged the house. Where else do we go for more money? Because I want to take it to the next level. I want to improve it. Um, and I wrote a letter to uh, Theo... Pathetis. Pathetis. I was his name wrong. Got <laughs> I'll, call, I'll call him Theo for now. <laughs> and um, Peter Jones. Yeah. Um, and I sent them a letter. Um, I basically wanted to get on their program. I wanted the exposure. I wanted to get on there. And between you and I, I've never mentioned this, I wanted to get on there and say no. Oh, really? Yeah. You just wanted the exposure so you could push that out there? A hundred percent. Because everyone was raving about it back in back in the day of the Dragons there. I wanted to get on there and say, bring it there. Imagine how exposure we'd have got a sport and music festival. We'd have got that millions and millions. But actually then say, sorry, chaps, it's not. I'm gonna keep, I want to keep 100% of this. But that was the goal. And I wrote them a letter and um, uh, uh, Theo came back and very politely said, it's not for him, but he loves the idea. And uh and Peter Jones gave me the old cold shoulder. <laughs> Nishta. <laughs> Absolute now. Should we see if we can get him on the podcast and ch chat about yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> 100%. I'd love to have a chat with Peter Jones. Let's do it. So all the pressure was on you to in, in, invest in this and and keep keep the wheels turning. How did that feel? How did you do it? How did you go about it? Just keep pushing on. You just have to keep pushing on because it's a numbers game. It's a pure numbers game. How many more tickets do I have to sell? Jesus Christ, I need to find and sell another 2,000 tickets to break even in year two. Right, here we go again. More promoting, more more, more people up at running around Twickenham getting chased by security in super women's outfits and Superman's outfits. <laughs> Benny but Hill again. Benny Hill again. It was that. It was just, this is what we had to do. And I loved I loved being chased by security around. And I, it was a game for me. Mm. Business is a big game for me. Let alone that going up there and knowing that every fly you put into someone's hand. And also in 2009, the power of, like I said, the, the, the promoter's dream back then was Mark Zuckerberg. And he allowed us to promote even harder on, on Facebook. And that's kind of what we did. But there's a lot of people in the festival world would have buckled um, after year one and gone straight for investment. Under the pressure and the fact that, you know, although you made a profit, it wasn't enough to kind of fund the next one. And yeah. you think people would have just yeah. let it go. Yeah. My standards are super high. Yeah. And I wanted the festival... I wanted people to come back the following year and go, wow, he's taken it to a whole new level once again. Mm. Obviously, we're talking a lot about the build-up and things like that and changes you made. Yeah. Um, do you remember how the festival itself went that year? Yeah, I do. I do. It was really important as well to mention that I got a, uh, a lad on board, a friend of mine, uh, Ben Reynolds, who owned a brand called Coca Loco in mm -hmm. Bournemouth, and he was a student nightclub promoter and what have you. So that was the idea in 2009. I needed more people. I had to get more people in. So we worked out this deal that he would sell tickets. He would get his team of people selling tickets. He sold a thousand tickets. He got five or a ticket or whatever it was. He come out of good money. I created a win-win situation again. And we generated more buzz for the festival, you know. And on top of that, for the 2009, we brought in hot tubs. We just brought in more dance tents. And we brought in more and more of what people wanted. And we really went down that music route. 
Um, and experiential stuff. I think for me, when I remember going to Bournemouth Sevens as a punter, it was all all about the experience. It wasn't the headline acts and things like that. It was the things on offer there and, and the atmosphere for me that hit me as a punter. Is that something you aimed to do? Is that something you aimed to achieve? 100%. 100%. I wanted like-minded people in the field partying, having fun, dancing and having a beer and meeting new people from around the UK who are all the same mentality. Mm. You know, there's no hairs or graces on people. There, People know what they're getting. It's about creating an experience they leave and have for life. They go back to the north of England, to Wales, to Scotland, to wherever it may be, to Norwich or wherever London and go back, I had the weekend of my life because I met new people. I've contacted them and we're in, we were in contact and we're meeting up in London. That was a delight. And we still talk like that now. Yeah. Still the mindset is, yeah. you know, we want people to go back and, and spread the word. Yeah. Uh, in comparison to year one then, uh, what were the pressure levels like that year? 2009. They were, I put more pressure on myself. No one was putting pressure on me, but I knew what the sums looked like and I knew had to get more women there. I never wanted it, the numbers, the ratios were like 80, 20. 80% fellas and 20% women in year one. That wasn't good enough for me. But that year two, it ended up like, because we got loads more netball teams in in year two. We ended up with like 100 netball, 96 netball teams. And it, and the ratios went from like 80, 20. The ratios dropped in our favor. It went to like 50, 50 in year two. I was like, oh my God, this is working. Obviously having 96 netball teams competing and then buying into the weekend was... was um was an absolute winner for Amazing. us. Amazing. Uh, so 2010, moving on to the, the next year. Yeah. Um, that saw a lot of change in your working environment from what I've heard. Yeah. Is, is, that, <laughs> is that right? <laughs> it sure did. That was, uh, that's when we left, you know, that's when we left and got out of the garage and decided to go into brand spanking new offices. Um, and that was really daunting because, again, it was like paying for a new member of staff the, 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 the cost of going to a new office. So yeah. you're then juggling that again. You know, you've got to get more turnover to pay for the cost. You get more turnover to pay for new staff and um, it's getting that balancing act. Um, but yeah, we moved into new offices and it was a kudos for us. It allowed us to actually say to people, come to our boardroom, mm. come into our offices. And it was a delight um, to have that. And they're the same offices we're in today? Yeah, yeah. 10 years on, mate. We've uh, obviously, we've expanded and uh, we've got fantastic offices, really cool vibe as you know you swallowed up another office didn't you and, and yeah. a couple of years later yeah we expanded into and two you're you don't strike me though as somebody who likes sitting at a desk all day <laughs> <laughs> uh staring at a computer screen uh how does it feel being in an office environment i'm I, I remember coming in had all these offices built my own office within the office and i had a glass i had the people coming in design i had a glass that you could see out on everyone on the staff and I had my big massive desk and Someone bought me this big Apple computer back in 2010 and I had a shiny silver bin and I had these filing cabinets they all bought and, <laughs> and I, had, I, had, I had my West Ham memorabilia shirts and England rugby shirts up on the walls in, in my personal office in, in my room and stuff. And I sat there when it was all done. It wasn't for me. I thought, what is all this about? I don't use a computer. I use my phone. I don't. We're all at the same level. We all work together on the same level. I don't see myself as this person that, you know, it just wasn't, it just really, really wasn't for me. I felt lost. I'm used to me working from home off my mobile phone, everything off my mobile. Yeah. So, yeah, it was um, it was weird. But I knew I was building a culture for the staff, mm. for everyone else. I knew I was building, building. we had a boardroom and we had, 
you know, all the games in there and it was building the culture and building the right team around me, really. I think mm. that was the main that was the main driver. But yeah, I felt totally lost then. It's not actually really surprising to hear, because knowing you, it's most people's dream to kind of get to that stage where you've got your own office, where you're looking out at your staff. And it's it must have been a bit of pride there, but also the fact that that's not for you, that's not you. And I think it, it speaks volumes that today that office is no longer here. It's been turned into more space for the for the collective. And actually, when you come in, you kind of go between desks and yeah. chat to people. Yeah. And, you know, we've got a meeting room now instead. And, yeah. and uh, that's the kind of culture here. Instead, it's not you at the top there looking down at yeah. everybody. It's you getting involved. Yeah. Was, yeah. was that uh, something you did consciously or did it just evolve? No, it's just me. I love people. I love people. I'll speak to anyone. I like humble, nice people. I like creative people. I like talented people. I like spotting talent in people and they don't even know they're talented. And that's normally an 18 to 21, 22-year-old, 23-year-old mm. who, who are super talented in an area but just don't have that belief. They don't have that belief system. That they're, you know, As they were younger, they might have not been given the belief that they're talented or belief that they're positive or belief that they're creative. Or, you know, And I do love finding talented, young, enthusiastic, passionate people to come on board. Mm. I buzz off it because they're teaching me. I'm learning every day as well, you know. If I can add my wisdom to any of their stuff or, you know, anything that I'm doing to improve what they're doing, great. And obviously 2010, like like you mentioned, you've got offices. That's extra pressure on you. You've got staff. Um, So just to add a little bit more pressure, you decided to start thinking about a new business. uh, (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) We've obviously covered quite extensively (laughs) in in episode uh, seven with Steph Essex. Um, So if you haven't heard that, go back and listen to that as well. Obviously, the idea for Viper 10 came up in 2010. So you started work on that. How did you balance that with the Bournemouth Sevens life and and all the the stuff? I look back now and I think, what were you doing? Madness. Festival enough with three or four members of staff, let alone trying to bring on a create us built and build a, a sportswear brand. But I knew I had to have a second business, Dan. I knew I had to have something to back up in case Bournemouth Sevens went tits up. You know, when you're putting on festivals and events, uh, more so festivals, it's a risky business, but it's, you know, high risk, high reward. But I knew it could be a second business and a bolt on to everything that we're doing with Bournemouth Sevens. We had 400 teams come to the festival. All these sportswear companies were contacting me saying, can we come and sponsor the festival because we want to tap into all your teams. That's when it came about. And I was like, why don't we do our own sportswear brand? And you know what I'm like, <laughs> if I come up with an idea, I do want to follow through if it, ticks, yeah. if it ticks, you know, eight out of the 10 boxes and it ticks a lot of boxes back then. But you're going into a whole new world, mm. a whole new world of research and development, a whole new world of looking for factories around the world. That was, um, looking back, crazy to be juggling that in year three of Bournemouth Sevens. Mm. Ambitious. Yeah, you can call it ambitious, mate, or or, or stupid or nuts or stupid <laughs> yeah. or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but you know, it's one of those things that you worked hard on it for a number of years in the end. Like I'm sure at that point you didn't think it would take you two years, which it eventually did. Yeah. But that is because like Bournemouth Sevens, you wanted to get it right and yeah. and improve it. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So I've got high standards then and I knew that if I spent two years research and development I was racking up these bills. I was racking up, you know, research and development costs on on getting uh, samples made and, and flying out to Turkey a couple of times, flying out to Lithuania and contacting Pakistan and China and while juggling everything else. It was mental, but... Um, do you think it, Bournemouth Seven suffered that year or do you think you managed to juggle it well? No, I don't think it suffered. Uh, it obviously pulled my attention because I love creating brands. Yeah, That's one of my strengths is creating and identifying... Uh, businesses that have weaknesses and looking at those businesses and seeing how we can grab those businesses and take away the weaknesses and 
improve on it and add in new a new digital side to a sportswear brand that people weren't doing and creating online kit designers and yeah. and making it really cool with lots of colors and wicked designs and so that's what we did and you know it really paid off when when we sold it in 2018 but yeah so 2010 back to Bournemouth sevens uh quickly how did that event go obviously you're a couple of years in now you've learned from uh, a couple of events rather than just one how, how did that one go down in the end it went down really well and i could see it improving each year more people more improvement all the word spreading like wildfire around the uk across the rugby clubs and the netball clubs and party people what is that thing going down the south coast in Bournemouth? You heard about it? What Bournemouth Sevens? Yeah, I went to it last year. Oh, amazing! I haven't been yet, but I've heard all my friends are going next year, and it created that that buzz. But yeah, so that was a, it was a real a success. But still, it wasn't where I wanted it to be. Mm. It wasn't a festival as I see a festival. I called it a festival, but if I'm sitting here today with 13 years under my belt of a festival owner, it still wasn't a festival. But people thought it was a festival, yeah. but it wasn't. I remember back then, again, as a punter, yeah. I remember people still referring to it as Rugby Sevens. Local people yes, were served local as, people. Local people yeah. as Rugby Sevens, but nationally people were calling it Bournemouth Sevens yeah. Festival. And that's what I set out to do in the year one to spread the word of that festival. It was all about the festival. Um, so, yeah, that was... That's what I saw change in those couple of years is mm. local people that I knew referring it to Rugby Sevens mm. and it's just a a rugby tournament in the field a lot of people who hadn't been thought that yeah. and as soon as you go you realize it's a festival yeah. and it started growing as a festival from that year as far as yeah. i see from the outside yeah, yeah it was it, it's it's great to have seen where it is now where it's a pure festival yeah. where sport is at the heart of it yeah. um, there's and, five sports now dan yeah. rugby netball hockey dodgeball and volleyball mm. There's a lot yeah. of like-minded people traveling and flying in from different countries to come to it, you know? Yeah, it's incredible the beast it's become. And I'm sure we'll cover that in detail yeah. where we've got to now uh, <laughs> later on. Uh, but we're still in 2010. Yeah. Um, and you talked uh, before about um, your relationship with Bournemouth Sports Club and um, how you kind of hosted the event there. Um, and you're two years in now. How did your relationship look? Did Were you planning ahead? Were you doing it year by year? What was, what was the setup? Yeah, um, again, we were just trying to protect ourselves at every angle. One of the biggest weaknesses, I guess, is making sure that you protect yourself with the venue. Because if the venue do another booking or they don't want you next year or, you know, you're, you've got to go and find a new venue. You don't want to build a brand around moving venues all over the place, you know? So we wanted to be locked in into the festival site, which is Bournemouth Sports Club, 67 acres of land, really worked for us. They wanted to be locked in with us because they were skint, basically, and they'd blown all their money on their move from when they moved from Kinson to, to where we were here. So it was a match made in heaven. Um, and I they approached and said, look, we'd like to do a long-term contract with you. So I was like, well, this is music to my ears. This is great. I want to do a long-term contract with you too. So they spoke about a three-year contract. So we had a meeting, a three-year contract. And so we went away and we'd done the deal and they were happy. We were happy. We were paying their... their uh, you know, for their high fee for the weekend, they were earning probably 10, 20 times more than they would do, mm. you know. So it was a real win-win. And I remember knocking up the contract. Our, our lawyer knocked up the contract, sent it over to them. And the night before I went to sign the contract, I had two contracts. I had one for three years and I had one for 10 years. So I took it to the meeting and, and sat down with them. And I said, look, I've got one here. You're ready to sign. We're all ready to sign. I said, guys, I've got one here for three years and I've got one here for 10 years. Which one do you want to sign? <laughs> 
I was hoping they were going to say the 10 year one and, yeah. and straight away they were like hundred percent. We want to do the 10 years. Oh wow. So within a three minute conversation, we're signed a 10 year deal, which was a huge win-win for both parties. And that's why we've got a strong relationship. And that was done in 2010. And, you know, we've actually got a 20 year deal now. So. And that's, that's a, that's a confident step as well for somebody who, it, I mean, three years is a, you know, successful event. If, if, if you can go three years, you're doing well. Um, but that's a lot of confidence in you managing to keep, keep it going. Yeah. Did you, I, you had, you were really confident in it. That, that um, I was confident I was onto something. Yeah. I don't, still didn't work out. I still couldn't work out the, 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 the business model. I was still working it out. I was still mm. working the business model out on what works in the daytime versus the nighttime. What, how much people are spending, what they're not spending, the movement around the festival. I was still working everything out. So I just had to go balls deep and, and, and take that plunge and make sure we're locked in. Because mm. then you can plan. You know, a three-year sounds a lot. You know, 10 years ago or 12 years ago, three years to me was like, my God, three years, that's a long time. But actually, as I've got older, three-year contracts just fly straight away. Mm. <laughs> you know, so there was a lot of trust from both parties. And... um Again, creating a win-win, Dan. I'm sure you had a lot of performance measures that year of how, how you were measuring the success of uh, Bournemouth Sevens. But from rumours I've heard, one of the uh, best measures you can have of how successful it was in regards to people turning up was um, you run out of beer. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, we run out of beer. Because it was, obviously, we order a shed load more mm. because it's sale or return. If you don't sell it, you can send it back as long as you haven't opened the barrels. You know, barrels, hundreds of barrels of lager has all been linked up to the bars and the pipings everywhere. I've got that 100 metre, we had a 100 metre long main bar and uh, bars in different parts of the site and stuff. But I remember at 11 o'clock Sunday night, I was, on the, I was on the main stage in the DJ box looking at the crowd and everyone was jumping and singing and it was just the atmosphere. And then all of a sudden I got the I got the old rattly pocket, the old zzz in the yeah. in the pocket again. Loads of messages like you are. It's probably an we, iPhone at this point, rather. Than yeah, I think it might be. Yeah, I think it might. We flipped over to the uh, the new age there. Yeah. And um, again, dodge, 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 dodge. Get here now. We've run out of beer. You are joking me. What time is it? Eleven o'clock. So I had two hours left on the Sunday night. All the taps had gone. All the beer had been sold out, and we'd bought like twenty five percent more than we thought we were going to sell. And we never underestimate how much sports teams sports drink. people love a beer. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So then, anyway, it was literally everyone was just buying uh, alco pops, warm hooch shots. They just didn't care. They just didn't care. There are two hours left, and uh, yeah, that was. Uh, I'm glad it was eleven o'clock Sunday night rather than nine. You know, eleven a.m. Sunday yeah. morning. You know, but yeah. But that again changed how you approached the following years, right? Oh God, yeah, that was a, that 2011 we moved on to there was a was a game changer once again. Instead of hundreds of barrels turning up, so you imagine getting a barrel off, you got to lift it off, you got to roll it, you got to plug it into the pipes. You know, obviously these teams of people doing that, but all of a sudden next year, these massive tankers turn up. I said we need tankers. These massive tankers turn up from the depot from Southampton, and you imagine like a. I don't know, maybe a 20-metre tanker, like a big silver tanker with Carlsberg written down the side. Mm. That's just full of beer. Yeah, There's 44,000 pints in one tanker <laughs> with one pipe that comes off and splits across, the, splits across your whole festival site, you know, and all these tankers are turning up. But that was a nerve-wracking experience as well. Mm. I just remembered. And well, that's, that's a big chunk of profit heading down the road on wheels kind of towards huge, your site. Huge, mate. Yeah. Huge. Well, you think about the revenue streams of a festival is you've got your tickets, you've got your camping, you've got your 
VIP camping, you've got your VVIP tickets, you've got your catering, you've got your sponsorship, um, and if anything else I've forgotten. But obviously on the weekend, it's the bar sales. Mm. Um, so everything's pre-event. Everyone's bought the tickets. Everyone's paid the sponsorship money. Everyone's paid. Now you're waiting for all the booze to turn up. Yeah. And that booze turns up on the morning of the Friday to set up. Um, and that is nerve-wracking. Where are they? Yeah, they've left the depot. Where are they now? Yeah, they're in Portsmouth. Where are they now? They're stuck in traffic. Oh, fuck, don't tell me that, for fuck's sake, please. Come on, we're getting closer. Where are they? Bournemouth Airport. Yeah, I can see them coming in. And we're like jumping up. Yeah, they're here now. We're safe. We're safe. It's that last jigsaw. It's the last, last piece in the jigsaw, yeah. really. It's not the last piece in the jigsaw, but it, it's a big piece. It's a huge piece mm. in the jigsaw to say, right, we've got all our soldiers in a row now. Now let's get the punters in. Let's get the customers. Make them have a wicked time. Make a great experience. And hopefully they like a few beers while they're at it. So this is year four of the festival, and obviously you'd been in the events industry for for a number of years, for a very long time. It's it's your, been your profession yeah. uh, since you basically left school. Yeah. Um, did you feel confident at, at this point that you knew what you were doing? Because we have mentioned before in previous episodes that at some points you were just flying by the seat of your pants and kind of um, like the first festival, you learned a lot in that mm. year. At this point, did you know this was your game? This is You knew exactly what you're doing in the festival world? I'm still learning every day, Dan. <laughs> I'm learning every day, mate. And the day I stop learning, I might as well walk away. So I was learning and improving and tweaking. I was working out my tactics, taking things away, adding things in, adding new members of staff to build a team around me. And and, and having the reality check of what are my weaknesses? Mm. What am I really good at? Well, I know what I'm really good at. What are my weaknesses? Right, I need to cover my weaknesses. Who can I bring in to cover my weaknesses? To do the stuff that one I don't like doing, and two that I'm no good at. So one of the those people uh, that you brought in this year, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, is Craig Craig Matthew, who's still with us today as managing director. Um, how did that come about? Craig um, got in contact. In fact, uh, for a friend of mine, uh, Craig spoke to him and said, "Can you speak to Dodger see if there's any opportunities within?" Diamond Sporting Group and the Bournemouth Sevens Festival. And I said, come on in. You know, I'll, I'll, if anyone, I'll, I'll speak to anyone um, if they're talented. So he come in and said, mate, I really want to work for the festival. I'm passionate about events. I think I can add huge value of what you're doing. Um, I love the concept of sport and music. I said, great. What, you know, what you, what your, uh, what's your skill set? And he kind of said the skill set. And I was like, mate, I've, I've got no money to, I've got no money and there's no one I, I can't afford anything right now um but at the same time he, when he first come in he was really quiet and shy like i wouldn't say boo to a goose mm. but i saw something in him and i saw this passion that i have not seen in anyone else over the years and the passion for events and the passion to be the best i could just see that in his eye even though he didn't express it because he was so nervous in that first meeting and and I just knew there was something there. And I said, I said, where are you working at the moment? He said, working in a local bar in, in town. And uh, I was like, man, I've got no money to give you. I, I would love to give you the opportunity, but I haven't. So anyway, we went away and he was banging on the door saying, I really want to do this. And I, we ended up doing a deal and I said, I can't afford to keep uh, to have you, but I've got 14 grand if you want to come on board. And he said, yes. And I said to him, I give you my word this was in 2011. I'll give you my word. If the company does well, you'll do well. 
And he has. It's 2016 he became managing director. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so in five years, he's gone from this young kid who, like you say, wouldn't say boo to a goose to a managing director of a pretty successful festival. Yeah, yeah. He's been outstanding. Absolutely outstanding. He's been my right-hand man, and uh, I can't speak highly enough for Craig. For someone to come with you 10 years to come on a journey and see what I've gone through, he's seen everything. He's seen every different emotion. He's seen every different financial pressure. He's seen He's seen, he's seen everything. Mm. It must be, uh, you must be proud to see him where he is now because he's kind of, he's now a leader in the events industry himself and yeah. he's, he's involved in organizations, national organizations and, yeah. and campaigns and things like that where he's really making waves. It must, it must be, you know, it must be, fill your pride to see oh, him Oh, massive, that. massive. Most bosses would go, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. Stick with those. You, you, you do. No, mate, go and, go and make a big name for yourself. Get yourself out there, mate. Have the freedom to do what you want within the business because you're smashing it. Yeah, he is. He's yeah, really you're, he's a delight to work with. He's got this wonderful vibe about him. He's very calm, very collected, and at the end of the day, he gets shit done. And did he take pressure off that year one? Did Did you feel the pressure relieving a bit for you? Um, it wasn't a massive impact in terms of taking pressure off me because he was working under other people back then. Mm -hmm. I just knew it was another set of hands that, I was working out what, what his attention to detail would be like, what his organizational skills were like. And I was learning about him. Um, so it wasn't like this massive impact where someone's got 10 years experience and goes, bam, he's made an impact from day one. Yeah. I just knew that he had something special. What changes did you make in 2011? Now, obviously, four years in. Uh, what kind of changes did you make to improve the experience that year? Well, more and more celebrities were knocking on my door. <laughs> Dodge, can we come down? We want to hear about, can we come down? And then TV crews were coming down and BBC and, and ITV and Sky Sports. And I was like, my God, my God. But one of the biggest changes we did that year is like I mentioned a minute ago, were those massive container units of beer turning up, mm. you know, because what it did, it created quicker service. Because you imagine if you're two or three deep at a bar and there's someone serving you and they're pouring a pint and that pint takes 60 seconds, they pour the pint, they take the money. We flipped it that year. So we had this big container come in and we had these um, these units, these power units that would pour 20 beers, at, 20 pints at a time, like <laughs> with a, the pour of beer in like five seconds. And then behind the person serving, you would have long and long tables of thousands of pints already poured. So the service was just sped up, sped up by 10 times, which created an even better experience, which created even more turnovers on the bars because people were saying, well, I'll have eight pints and, and mm. can I have them straight away and walking away? And it just sped everything up again. So that was a huge, a huge thing for us in 2011. Sport-wise, what were the sports looking at, like at this point? Because obviously we've seen now we're, you know, flying when it comes to sports. Mm. Uh, had dodgeball and things like that been in, no. introduced at this point? No, when, no, no. When no. did they come in? Uh, they come in a lot later. They come in sort of 2013, dodgeball, hockey, and, and other sports that we threw in there to test the water. So you're still core it's kind core of rugby, rugby netball. and netball. Rugby and netball. But each year, more and more women were coming to the festival. Mm. More and more women were playing netball. There was, a, there was this wonderful balance. You know, that was a huge part of our festival. And would, would you see this year as, as a bit of a game changer? Yeah. I, well, the business side of things, definitely. Yeah. Oh, 100%. You know, you knew what revenue streams were coming in. You were locking in the venue for, for 10 years. You were locking in big sponsors for two, three-year contracts. You were you were, you were were seeing the bar revenues go up. You're seeing more people coming through the doors. That's all great. But if your overheads are going up at the same time, you know, it's a balancing act. 
you know, getting your revenue streams up and trying to keep your overheads as low as possible to create a business model that is profitable. Mm. You know, hearing all these books and everyone talks about business, this business, that, what have you got to do? Keep it simple. Get your turnover up and keep your overheads low. And whatever you're left with is your profit. <laughs> That's the Barry Hearn school of uh, yeah. business. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's a simple... It's a simple equation and I've always kept it, as you know, Dan, I've tried to keep it really, really simple. Great. And how did it compare this year again on a scale of 2008, 2009 being pretty full of pressure? How was 2011? It was still lots of pressure mm. because I was juggling a new business as well. You're still, <laughs> still obviously Viper 10, not off the ground yet, but not a off lot the of ground. work going into it. Yeah, you think loads of money has been... been hemorrhaged out the door mm. on research and development, building websites, building building a little team, flying costs, you know, hotels. It was all building up, but no money was coming in. Mm. So that was putting more pressure on us again. Um, but again, I had this vision that that combining and, and the two businesses and piggybacking on Bournemouth Sevens, I knew that this is the way forward. And we, we're talking a lot about the business itself and your your business life. Um, but in previous episodes, we've talked about how that affects you and you, you and Fleur in it personally. Yeah. Um, how was how was all that going at the moment? Was it a bit more settled? Was Fleur less less kind of stressed by it all? Um, Dan, no, no, there was more stress. There was more financial stress and more pressure. And it's like the rock and the swamp, you know. Um, Someone takes, someone may take all that pressure, and the other one's just driving forward and driving forward. And mm -hmm. but she was dealing with everything behind the scenes. She was dealing with having to sign off on finances, dealing to having to pay people. Did so she constantly seeing how much money was going out. Mm. Where I'd never looked at that. I was working out how much money I can bring in. Yeah, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's a there's a positive. I guess mentally there's a positive side of you know when you're bringing money and this is great. And there's obviously it's going to have a detriment at some point of constantly just seeing what's going out mm. you know but um that 2011 was no the pressure didn't ease off at all mate the pressure the pressure grew mm. now you're asking that question i haven't time to think about this before but the pressure grew this might be jumping ahead a bit but when did the pressure kind of plateau oh wow there's a question this might be further down the line yeah than we discussed mate. today but uh, just interested 2017 Really? Wow. Yeah. But there's different pressures. You're talking about Bournemouth Simmons as a business working yeah. and financially working. But I put pressure on myself to make it even greater mm. and even bigger and to hit it out to the world in you know, the years we're going to talk about, I guess, in the future. But We'll, we'll skip on uh, to 2012 uh, and get in, into a bit more detail about that as well. Um, we know from episode seven that Viper 10 did launch this year. How did that go? Again, that pressure that Viper 10 was building, it was a snowball going down. It's building and building and building and building. You know, to, to create a video shoot and to get people on board like Lewis Moody, who left his Nike contract with a year to go to come on board with Viper 10 as the England captain who took England to the Rugby World Cup in New Zealand and the World Cup winner. For him to leave his contract and come across, he believed in us. You know, again, selling a dream. And he, he backed us, as did Pamela Cookie, the England captain mm. of netball at the time. So... Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, we launched we launched um, Viper Ten at a couple of months before Bournemouth Sevens to get all the team kits in, and all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, you had all these at the time. Then I can't remember how many teams it was. It must be two hundred and fifty, three hundred teams, and like ninety percent of all turning up in Viper Ten kit. Yeah, madness! It was a dream. 
Yeah. It was a dream come I, true. I remember that year saying, where is this Viper 10 come yeah, from? Yeah, everyone it, did. It was everywhere. Yeah. I thought this is something I've completely missed. Yeah. And suddenly, boom, it's right there yeah. in your face. All playing kit, all great designs, all tight playing shorts and shirts and netball dresses and hoodies and tracksuits. And everyone had pre-ordered it to get to to collect it at Bournemouth 7s Festival. Mm. You know, so you were, so we were kind of looking how we can jump on every revenue stream. And it's important in business that you do that. You know, it's, no, it's important you don't leave any to, uh, any stone unturned. And when you, now you're you're pretty well established, uh, and you've got partnerships and and sponsors, uh, kind of loyal ones still on board. Yeah. Were you still nurturing those relationships, looking for more relationships? Yeah, yeah. It's all about relationships. It's all about nurturing. It's all about just about being a good bloke. You know, the word sponsorship scares people. The word going to get sponsorship scares people. What is this? What does it look like? What's a, what's a bronze, a silver, a gold? What do I have to say in a meeting to get sponsorship? You know, it's about creating an experience for the target audience that that sponsor wants is bringing to the table. Mm. And instead of just putting banners and posters up and, and banners around the pitch, they wanted to create an experiential it then started to flip. It started to change. It was all about experiential back then. What can they give out for free? What can they get people testing at your festival? Because we've got that audience. And, you know, going back to David and, and uh, John Don, David Yarnton and from the gaming company, you know, we were three odd years in now and the contract was headline sponsor and it was really strong relationship. You know, we'd go to, he would invite me to his box at Twickenham. We'd have long lunches and, and I'd invite, I'd bring the different celebrities into his box and, it was just looking after, two blokes looking after each other. Mm -hmm. And it was... You become friends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you become friends. You become friends, obviously. You, you know, yeah. you know, he loved what we do and, and, and backed, backed my dream, mm. as did many other sponsors and many other long lunches we went out for and sporting occasions where I'll take him to Twickenham, I'll take him to Upton Park back in the day, you know, to go and watch a game. And it's just, it's just about being a good bloke and, and building... Good, solid relationships. You know, I remember now, it was like, um, it must have been the end of April, start of May. You know, the uh, the CEO, top man of the gaming company that I can't mention, went on uh, Lawrence Delalio and Freddie Flintoff's bike ride. And they were doing a big charity bike ride. I think it was coming from somewhere in Europe and coming back to, back to London for the Olympic Games. And um, David backed the guys and gave them sponsorship and uh, gave them a big chunk of money for charity. But part of that was David, they invited David to come and do a leg of the race, which was a hundred miles on a bike. Um, and boom, I got a phone call. David's had a heart attack. This is like three weeks before the festival. I was like, you're joking me. What, what on the Freddie Flintoff and Delalio's bike ride? Yeah. He's had a heart attack. He's in the Greek hospital. I was like, you are joking me. You know, David lived and breathed Bournemouth Sevens because he was a rugby man, he was an Australian rugby man. And I couldn't believe it, mate. I was in shock. He's, you considered him a friend at this point. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Wonderful man. He supported a lot of charities, supported a lot of people, and he believes in people. And um, that was a huge shock. And then I was trying to deal with that while juggling a festival and juggling the launch of, of uh, Viper 10. And, yeah, it was a proper... Proper kick, kick. yeah, it goonies. was. Yeah, it was a kick in the plums. It really was, and luckily, you know, I think he spent a couple of weeks in the Greek hospital. Freddie Flintoff saved saved his life, in fact. Yeah, <laughs> good old Freddie. How yeah. did he do that? He saved his life. He, he saw he saw him bang. He said he was out cold, and Freddie was cycled over, sprinting over. Then I think he, he gave him a suscitation, and wow. ambulance came, and what have you. So 
Thank you, Freddie Flintoff, for yeah, saving nice his life. Nice one, Freddie. Yeah. That, obviously, a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah. Um, so a tough approach to, to Bournemouth Sevens, but it got worse, didn't it? Yeah, it did got massively worse. So you mentioned that kind of David and Goliath battle that you were in the midst of during all of this. How did that transpire and how did it end up? Well, this is all going on after, obviously, David's heart's out, the new guy coming in. We were writing, you know, they are the, one of the wealthiest companies in the world. We're a small little four-man, five-man team in sunny Bournemouth. But I didn't give a shit, Dan. Mm. Bring it on. I've got a contract. You want to pull out because the, um, bring it on, you know. And they kept sending lawyers letters. And, I, and in that game, in this crazy game of lawyers, you've got to send a lawyer's letter back. That's another two grand. Mm. That's another two grand. And it kept going on and on and on. It's, it's, it's a big old story, that. But I weren't backing down. After that festival, I was like, I'm going to fight you all the way to the end. Mm. To the to to the till we get to the high court or whatever, I didn't care. Well, maybe we'll pick up on that in the next episode. Um, feels like a good place to wrap it up. And uh, if you want to hear more like this episode, um, obviously we've got a stream of them available, as well as interviews with some of the biggest names from business, entrepreneurship, events, and sport. So make sure you subscribe and also leave us a cheeky review while you're there. Dodge, where can people find you if they want to get connect with you? Instagram. Type in the name Dodge or Roger Woodall or Eventful Entrepreneur. And obviously I'm big on uh, LinkedIn too. Perfect. Great. Thanks for sharing. And um, I'm looking forward to doing this again, mate. Lovely. Good man, Dan. I appreciate that. Cheers, Thank you. Dodge. Cheers, buddy. 